Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, movie releases. This week, just jam-packed episode. We're talking Mank. It's finally here. And on the other line, what what better guest to have than a fellow film, film inquiry writer and host of his own podcast series, Revisiting the Golden Age, Josh Martin. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Josh, I know you and I have both been eagerly awaiting Mank, which is the newest yes. film from David Fincher uh, about screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz and his experience as a not not just a screenwriter in in Hollywood during the 1930s, but specifically writing the script for Citizen Kane. I, I think this is a movie that we can have a lot of varying conversations about. Uh, but I think probably the best place for us to start is talking about kind of the movie at this movie's center, which is Citizen Kane, uh, widely regarded by many as one of the, if not the greatest movie ever made, uh, directed, co-written, which I think, you know, the authorship of this movie is maybe something we can get into, uh, and starring Orson Welles. Um, I don't know what, when was the first time you came across Citizen Kane and, and watched it and kind of like, what is just your relationship to this movie? Cause I, I feel like for a lot of people, this movie has like a placement in their mind as sort of homework. And yeah. I want to, I want to kind of like, you know, br- brush that aside because I, I, Citizen Kane is fun and Citizen Kane is enjoyable. Yeah, no, I mean, so I first watched, first came across Citizen Kane. Uh, we've talked about this on, on my podcast before of um, the sort of importance to both of us of uh, various lists and of AFI lists and yes. uh, stuff where, where this movie is commonly listed as, as the greatest of all time. Uh, there's a great, great piece that we'll probably, uh, I'll probably allude to a few times by uh, in Vulture by uh Phil Gabiri about the the sort of how Citizen Kane gained this canonical status and how it came to be regarded as the greatest movie of all time. Um, but I saw it when I was thirteen um, or fourteen. I don't really remember, but but it was sometime when I was still in sort of uh, middle school. Um, mm. And um, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I was going through a lot of different uh, classic Hollywood films at the time, and um, yeah, the word you used earlier, homework, is particularly apt in terms of the way that people talk about Citizen Kane. Um, there are certain movies that have gained this reputation of just like, okay, well, if you want to be a cinephile, you want to talk about film, uh, you simply just have to see these. this list of movies. You have to be this well-versed in the canon in order to, um, in order to be able to sort of talk cogently about this stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that is a lot of people take that as like homework assignments and I'm even guilty of it too. I mean, the first time I watched, uh, Jean Renoir's, uh, the rules of the game earlier this year, I'm like, okay, just got to check this one off the list. And, uh, it was marvelous. I mean, it was one of my favorite first watches of the year. Um, and so for people who are sort of trepidatious about going into Citizen Kane, uh don't be it's great i've only it's not one that i return to all the time i wouldn't call it like one of my favorites of um 
the classic Hollywood era, but it is um, a really entertaining film. Um, there's a line in Mank where someone's like, you can't tell someone's life in two hours. And I mean, it kind of tries. I mean, it's constantly entertaining. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a really wonderful film. I watched it one other time and that was um, freshman year film class. Um, so like very first film class I took at UNC, it was um, required viewing. Um, and I really liked it then, but I'm actually due for a rewatch of it. And, um, I've been meaning to, uh, get around to taking another look at it, especially since, um, you know, Mank is a movie that, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about, it's not really about like Citizen Kane itself. Like it's not, it barely, the film barely has anything to do with, um, the actual sort of making. It sort of is and it it is and it isn't it's sort of yeah i think where we can kind of leave that for now before we exactly get into that movie um i was talking to a friend yesterday who was asking me if he should watch kane before watching this one and the answer is absolutely yes because i cannot imagine that this movie means anything to anyone who hasn't seen citizen kane i mean yeah um i, I imagine it would be close to incomprehensible or it just like why the hell do i care about any of this and what does this have to do with anything so citizen kane it's essential viewing it's fun viewing i would highly highly recommend everyone check it out and i plan to revisit it myself so yeah similar to you i've been been hearing a lot of people mention like should should i watch kane should i revisit kane before mank and i (laughs) the thing that kind of like immediately just jumped into my mind i don't know if you've seen the like oh hello broadway performance yeah. but there's like a bit in that wherein like nick kroll goes out into the audience and sees like a couple like 13 year olds there and he's like are you are you enjoying any of this and that's kind of how i i just sort of imagine like talking to someone who has not seen kane and going into this movie of i, do, I don't know that it's like you're going to be confused but i think you will have a um, a, a much needed sort of context behind sort of the the forces at work in the movie and the things that Fincher is sort of directly and indirectly drawing on and sort of referencing throughout the the movie's runtime. Yeah. Um, similar to you, I my experience with it is just like I, I was probably a little older. I was probably in high school, but you know this this is one of those movies that I would constantly see on the top of all-time great list like i think it's it's still the afi's number one on their 100 greatest american movies it is for uh the longest time until recently when i believe vertigo topped it you know it was the yeah the number one on the sort of sight and sound poll it's 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 always like within kind of that top tier of of films and was just (laughs) <laughs> at a, a beach house one summer and they had it on vhs and i was like well i might as well get around to watching this and you know it, i'll be honest it's one of the rare things in life where it it lives up to the hype in my opinion and yeah. putting it on with all of this kind of baggage and weight of importance on it you know i i think the reason it is revered so much and um is on so many of those best of lists i think is largely academic and i think maybe we can get into that a little bit the sort of 
historical importance of this movie and kind of what it meant to film as a medium and sort of the yeah. idea of the the auteur director um yeah. but it's also just like an insanely fun really engaging movie that i i rewatched it about a week ago um with my girlfriend who had never seen it before and i think it's still just as kind of like exciting and vibrant and um really interesting in in 2020 as it was in 1941 when it came i mean there's not there's not too many movies that just sort of like 80 years later feel as sort of inventive and exciting and their their style and aesthetic as well as still feel like they have a lot to say about the world we live in um so i i i will just as knowing you mentioned like having not seen it in a few years i hadn't seen it since i was probably in high school and was like and and fired it up again um it's on hbo max i believe and you know it was just you know i had it solidified that it is not just this sort of like historically really important movie but is also just a great movie experience to have if you have never seen it before. Yeah, no, there's a few things you alluded to there that I think are, are really important. One is um, the whole conversation of, of film authorship, which I, I'm sure we'll get to later because it's already among uh, the Wells devotees, the art, uh, the, you know, his, his fans, it is already the, the uh, Wellsites the, as I yes, call them. <laughs> yes. I've heard them called all sorts of things, but yeah, no, they are very, um, already up in arms about that and wells is an incredibly important figure um, in american film authorship in general the second thing that you talk about there that i think is really key is that it really is sort of a foundational american text which i think is part of its sort of enduring power um, there's all sorts of just very universal themes in play here um, you know even <laughs> there's there's a weird I, I i'm sure someone can find this somewhere if they want to look for it but there's a weird interview where Donald Trump talks about uh, Citizen Kane. Oh my Kane, God! <laughs> and he, you know, and he, and, and he literally finds it like aspirational. The what the what he thinks the message or sort of like the the lesson of that movie. I, you know, that's not to say that I feel like every movie needs to have a lesson for us to learn. But like what he thinks is yeah. that's the thing that he takes away from it. I will not ruin it for anyone, but is just like. It's so on brand and so wild that like it, I couldn't help but laugh when I first saw that clip. It is an incredible just like example of just not getting the point. Um, so anyways, and I think that's part of what um, Mank ends up being about sort of broader American issues rather than just, um, you know, who was the real author of Citizen Kane. I, like, like some people have said, I'm not sure it's really that that really matters. The third thing you mentioned, though, that I think is, is certainly key. Um, and it's, you know, it's both something that has kept Citizen Kane, you know, sort of prioritized in the canon. And it's also something that has sort of contributed to its homework reputation, which is the fact that um, it, it's one of the most technologically revolutionary films ever made. I mean, up there with Godard's Breathless and, you know, some of the other films that emerged in the new waves of the 60s. Um, this film changes everything stylistically. I mean, um, and uh, I think it's uh, Peter Labuza who says that it sort of gains its spot in the canon because it, its technique is so evident and you can just sort of point out certain stylistic devices that um, that it sort of draws on and, and invents. I mean, there's so much that's new in Citizen Kane. 
Um, and so whether it's Wells or, or cinematographer Greg Toland or Mankiewicz, it really is th- just this sort of revolutionary piece of art. And so, yeah, maybe the technological stuff isn't as evident to a contemporary audience, but um, it's still important. And the story, as we've said, is still sort of universal and uh, topical in its own way. What are your opinions on Wells? Because I think one of the... I don't want to get too much into the BS controversy amongst the, like, the is Mank a, a slap in the face to Orson Welles? Because I, 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 I think it's... I think it's actually not that extreme. I think people are reading into something that is is not really there. But it's interesting that I think the the starting off point for the movie is really this kind of fiery, controversial essay that film critic Pauline Kael wrote in The New Yorker yeah. um, titled Raising Cain. And the the sort of central argument of that essay was that basically... Orson Welles was not the the true author of Citizen Kane and that um, all all the things that sort of make Citizen Kane great as a movie kind of derive from uh, Mankiewicz and from the screenplay that he wrote. And I will say it is, I mean, Paul and Kale, I don't know how you feel about Paul and Kale. I would love for like, if there is like a week when absolutely nothing is happening in the world to just have like an hour long Pauline Kale discussion. Cause yeah. I think like Orson Welles, she is a, a figure in the, the movie film universe that is divisive to say the least. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like as with all Pauline Kale things, in my opinion, like raising Kane is pretty incredible as a, a piece of writing, but um, as a piece of journalism, it's kind of, you know, poop emoji it's yeah it's 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 littered with inaccuracies and there were a, a slew of essays from various other um film academics and even people like peter bogdanovich who is you know very close to orson wells that kind of discredited a lot of what kale was arguing but that central argument i i think is kind of the the spark that lit the fire for uh david fincher's father jack fincher to actually write the screenplay for this movie. And this movie has been kind of a passion project of David Fincher's since the nineties of wanting to get this movie made for his father. And that meta aspect, I think is something that we can get into later when we get to talking about the actual movie, but I was fascinated to hear like what your thoughts were on Wells as a figure and this idea of so much of the controversy around the, the quote-unquote authorship of Citizen Kane, which I feel like has been fairly settled at this point of both men contributed a lot to yeah. this screenplay and that Mankiewicz wrote this sort of like mammoth, like novel-length screenplay that Wells kind of shaped and whittled down and brought certain aspects out more and sort of toned some stuff back. Yeah, so there's, I guess there's two things I'll say. For First, um, I want to sort of give because anything I say will probably have been said better or could sort of be measured better by reading, I think, four pieces. One is the Abiri piece in Vulture that I mentioned earlier. Two, uh, two and three are there's two great reviews that end up being having a positive look on the film. That's Richard Brody's review in The New Yorker and Chaos and Collins review for, for Rolling Stone. Yes. Both great, great defenses of the film and what it does. And then if you want the other side of things, on Wellsnet, there's a, a piece, a lengthy piece by film historian Joseph McBride that's already sort of generated plenty, plenty of controversy. Um, 
and he's very much pro Wells. I don't really like, like some people have said already. I don't really understand why people feel the need to be so uh, defensive for Wells in this case. Um, the film itself, like we've sort of alluded to, um, I mean, I think Wells is an incredible figure. I mean, he's you know one of the few sort of um, truly sort of independent and um, vanguard voices in Hollywood history. I mean, he really you know ends up in in Europe making stuff. And yeah, the whole history behind Raising Cain is interesting, which I should read in its entirety to have you know a, a strong opinion on it. You know, what I thought of Pauline Kael in general. I, I think you know her writing is is often um, just wonderfully acidic and and trenchant and that sort of duel between Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris, which as the McBride piece notes, sparks really the whole, you know, the sort of genesis of Raising Cain and her sort I, w- of... I was about to say her there, if anyone doesn't know, and we're getting a little, um, <laughs> a little off topic, but yeah. I, for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, that, that feud between her and Andrew Saris over the idea of auteurism and the film being kind of the the singular work of one central figure as you know Saris kind of points to the the director and yeah. Kale kind of being harsh fiercely against that idea and it's kind of hard not to read Raising Kane at in all of its sort of reporting inaccuracies as just her trying to get like another clap back in the argument and sort of going after the film that is kind of seen as the ultimate auteur picture of RKO basically giving Wells like freedom to do whatever he want. And then you get the quote unquote greatest movie ever made. Well, let's transition to talking about the actual movie, which we both enjoyed. Um, I think you maybe even enjoyed a little bit more than I did. Um, However, I will, I will say that I, I am, (laughs) I am understanding of the people who um, maybe have walked out of uh this movie feeling underwhelmed or perplexed or um just sort of not liking it because it it is very idiosyncratic and i think a lot of your reaction to it will depend on kind of what your expectations are going in which isn't necessarily to say that the people who i've heard who have not liked it and it it seems the the reception i think thus far is largely positive though i i think in the sort of realms of social media for whatever that's worth it seems to be a bit divisive this is so like highly specific that (laughs) there it is for a very specific kind of audience it is going after a very specific kind of audience and i think a lot of people are going to be going in with expectations for not just what a movie about the making of Citizen Kane is going to look like, but what did going in with expectations for it being a David Fincher movie, which I would say like, this is a David Fincher movie that feels very different from anything he's ever done before. I mean, it's maybe not a nice comparison considering it's one of my least favorite movies of his, but I Benjamin button is kind of the only thing that I could think of that is, is kind of similar to of like, is, a little bit has a little bit more emotion and he seems really um, engaged in a very specific tech aspect of the movie um, as well as there, it is sort of this love letter to his father in a very particular way. I don't, what, what were kind of your immediate thoughts of the movie? Cause, and maybe that'll 
give us an opportunity to kind of dive into um some of the the thematic weeds of Mank. Yeah, so I'll say the other film that's been brought up a couple times from other people that I think I would agree is probably in play is uh the social network. Um this is a very Sorkin-esque script at times in terms of its sort of witticisms and um, sort of satirical, but I don't really see Sorkin as a satirist, but, you know, it's sort of the snappiness of the dialogue. It's, yeah, um, a very, like, fast-moving rat-a-tat dialogue, which yeah. I, I would just recommend, like, putting your closed captioning on while you watch yeah. the movie. You know, especially the way that Fincher kind of recreates the sound of kind of older movies and sort of compresses the audio um, and just how fast people are talking. I just wanted to be able to enjoy kind of like every single little like <laughs> backhanded comment and sort of yeah. like throw away comeback that uh, gets dealt in this movie, which I, I would just say that's a, a just personal recommendation for me if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, so the the thing that I thought was most interesting was certainly what you said about the fact that, it, you know, <laughs> there's always a question when you're making a movie and you're going, okay, you know, I, I don't have much experience making movies, but, you know, from what I understand about the filmmaking process, there's always a point where you ask yourself, okay, who is this movie for? Uh, the, the current sort of specializations of the streaming market where you can just have just boatloads of content um, with different audiences has changed this a little bit. But while I was watching this, I was certainly like a little bit like this movie's aggressively niche. Like there is a very, yes. <laughs> very small audience for a film about sort of the the corruption and the relationship between the political machine of the 1930s and the studio system. I mean, I am part of that audience. I'm I'm reading um, the sort of landmark book by Thomas Schatz, the genius of the system right now, which all of the people who are in this movie to varying degrees are players in that book. And, um, you know, it, so this stuff is all up, up my alley, but to someone who <laughs> isn't as familiar with that, I've already seen like you, I, I agree. I've seen plenty of people go, Oh, well, it's kind of boring. It's, you know, there's not really much character development. Not not so much going on. Um, if anything, I was kind of grateful for that because it set my expectations really low. And I actually do think there's a, a good deal of sort of, you know, it's a movie that's sort of about Mankiewicz's own moral dilemma about the sort of circles that he runs in. Um, you know, I understand if people are watching a movie about Citizen Kane and then go, okay, why the hell should I care about the, you know, 1934 uh, governor's race in race. Yeah, <laughs> which is sort of the central plot point. Uh, I know some of our friends are talking about this and I saw that before I watched the movie. So I had that in mind, but I don't mind. I think it's a really fascinating look at um, the way that the studio system is, um, you know, ran in that time and how uh, Louis V. Mayer operated, how Irving Thalberg operated. And, um, and yeah, so I enjoyed some of the name dropping, the sort of the the presence of the heck telegram. But um, the thing that, you know, didn't shock me, but also I thought was hilarious because, you know, a number of critics in certain reviews, and this is a, the rare film where I've, I've actively sought out sort of different pieces on it. Uh, Glenn Kenny wrote a great review for RogerEbert.com that challenges one of the dominant notions, and I'm sure you saw this a little bit as well, when the first reactions dropped of, 
oh, well, this is just such a love letter to cinema. No, it's not. It is not even close. Yeah, it, I... it, it, is, it is a movie that has such profound disdain for all the people that ran what's sort of colloquially known as the system of the Hollywood filmmaking era of, you know, the 1930s and 40s. Um, that I cannot, I mean, yes, the black and white's pretty, and yes, they they do, like, you know, the monocro or the mono sound and everything, and, you know, but that doesn't make it a love letter. This is not Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is very, very no, far no. from the sort of uh, broadly nostalgic, and I love that film more than anything, but the two films could not be more diametrically opposed if, if we're sort of considering them in the same discourse of films that deal with uh, Hollywood history in their own sort of odd ways. Yeah, I mean, two things that I really wanted to talk with you about. I mean, one is the sort of political aspect of this movie, which I think is really the meat of it. And I, I almost think sort of the one shot that I will give against the movie is I don't think for as kind of electric a filmmaker as David Fincher is. I don't. I, I think it's still really hard to make a movie about writing that is really, really engaging. And I yeah. think the bits of this movie that worked the least for me, and I, and I should just say, I, I it took me a while to kind of get into the groove of the movie, and that isn't necessarily to say that it's, it's paced oddly or that it's confusing, but I, I think the movie that, or I think the scene where the movie really came together for me was that kind of first party sequence um, that uh, William Randolph Hearst throws. And that's where the political aspect of the movie gets into. And I, I do think this is less a movie about the making of Citizen Kane. And I think the sort of behind the scenes, like how, how did he write the screenplay and sort of the negotiations with Orson Welles, that, that's sort of the least interesting part of the movie to me. And to me is just sort of this kind of like vessel for getting us into the weeds of Fincher doing this, this commentary on the classic Hollywood studio system and this sort of intersection of power and media influence and political interest that, you know, we just, we just got out of an election. I think you know, I don't necessarily want to just say like this movie is great because it's timely because that, you know, that's that's an argument that can expire like that. But I did find that really, really interesting. Um, and you sort of see that these things like fake news and sort of the power of media institutions to influence large numbers of people and sort of sway elections like that. That's always been happening. And yeah. for Fincher to kind of explore that through, okay, well, what it was the, um, you know, the predominant sort of media medium at that time in the 1930s, you know, it's, it's the movies. I mean, today it would be something like the internet and Facebook, but at that point it's the movies and sort of the idea that the heads of the studio, whether, <laughs> whether they be Louis B. Mayer or Irving Thalberg are kind of like, using this sort of incredible power at their disposal, the sort of incredible machine for lack of a better word, because the, the studio system, I feel like 
was run like it was a machine, like a yes. sort of product assembly line. And uh, look, I l- love plenty of those classic Hollywood movies as much as you do. Um, but I don't think we can be naive into being and just sort of look over how um, kind of messed up that system was for a variety of different reasons. Yeah. And I feel like this movie is at its best when it's sort of exploring the ways that those figures who had power over that system could use it to sort of influence the world and in, in their interest, I should say. Um, so I, that I I thought to be kind of like the most surprising and interesting part of the movie. It was like, huh, I went into this expecting like pretty standard sort of like behind the scenes movie with maybe like a little bit of david fincher cynicism <laughs> what i got was a david fincher movie about how media companies sort of <laughs> change minds to affect powerful people's political interests yeah no absolutely and i think it's you know the i agree with you that the writing stuff isn't particularly compelling and i think fincher knows that because most of the film is told in flashback, I mean, I, I like some of the scenes with Gary Oldman and Lily Collins, who plays sort of his aide when he's in um, Victorville, California, at this ranch working on the script. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you've said, it, it is not an inherently dramatic concept to depict someone writing a screenplay. And so Fincher avoids it as much as possible. Great choice. Um, and I think the all the stuff with the political race is really compelling. If I was going to point to a knock on the film i would um i'd look at the the sort of lack of a real sort of relationship between um between hearst and uh and mankowitz himself there's a couple scenes with the two of them um but you don't really get a sense that he had much of a bond with hearst and that's a little bit of uh, sort of the point so i'm almost refuting my own point here of you know hearst was at the top of a pyramid that sort of ended up implicating everyone. So I guess to summarize for the listeners a little bit who haven't or who, who haven't seen it or are just curious, the the sort of central political drama is that um, there's a governor's race in California. Um, Upton Sinclair, the sort of famous uh, muckraker journalist who writes The Jungle um, and exposed William Randolph Hearst several times throughout his career, is running on the Democratic Party on a, an explicitly socialist platform. Um, the Republican-dominated studio system led by Louis B. Mayer and Thalberg and many of the others um, want to do anything in their power to stop that. And so they, you know, I won't say what else happens, but that's sort of the central conflict. And Mankiewicz, who sort of leans politically left, ends up becoming disillusioned by the, the lengths to which all of these people working under Hearst will go to stop, you know, the, the the real will of the people from being exercised and yeah that's an increasingly relevant concept especially sort of the uh the broader american fear over the word socialism which still is you know sort of a, a pertinent thing to this day um and so you see mankowitz sort of coming to realize that the whole thing is kind of rotten and the sort of baseline cynicism that he had for the studio system at the beginning the telegram i mentioned earlier he sends telegrams to sort of famous screenwriters in new york telling them to come to california there's millions to be made here and your competition is idiots and sort of that sort of level of jadedness ends up being sort of combined with his anger at the fact that hearst can basically just you know buy his 
way into power and by his own sort of prominence and all of that gets poured into Citizen Kane. And I think that's a really interesting angle to look at a film that is sort of viewed mostly for Wells' own sort of independent spirit as being one of the true sort of anomalies of the studio system. Like we've sort of alluded to, no director was just given carte blanche after that. I mean, literally they just basically said to Orson Welles, you can work with whoever you want. You can make whatever you want. Just come in here and make something. Welles was already famous for the War of the Worlds telegram and for his work with the Mercury Theater. And so, yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting to sort of view that angle of it. Um, contrary to the other stuff, I don't think it, um, you know, necessarily uh, discredits Wells. Instead, I think it just offers sort of a look into what, how exactly this came into being and why Hearst, um, who, you know, isn't exactly an enduring figure in American politics I mean, or in American history. I mean, he's someone we hear about. But like when I was, you know, first watching Citizen Kane, I didn't know who Rand- William Randolph Hearst was. I mean, I, the name was vaguely familiar. I only familiar. knew of him as a, like, newspaper magnet. Some of the best stuff in the film, which has already been alluded to by plenty of people, um, is with um, Marianne Davies. Uh, if you've seen Citizen Kane, you know that the the sort of one of the major plot points is that Charles Foster Kane drifts with his wife and um, ends up sort of falling for this uh, showgirl ingenue that he grooms to be a star. And, um, you know, she isn't exactly a huge success in real life. That's based on uh, Marion Davies, um, which the film goes about in an interesting way because, you know, Marion Davies is portrayed by Amanda Seyfried as, as this really sort of luminous, wonderful character, even though she exists in this um, sort of world that is dominated by Hearst and his cronies. Um, and she doesn't exactly come out of uh, Citizen Kane looking good. And there's a scene with Mankiewicz and uh, Davies, to which my understanding is that that was false, that that actually never happened. But oh, interesting. That was in the McBride piece. If you read that on Wells Net, that apparently is, is a totally false scene, which makes sense. I mean, there's some other things that are alluded to in that movie about Davies. Um, you know, there's a scene where um, Mank is talking with his brother, um, and there's a question about the link between Davies and the phrase Rosebud. That is, you know, that is part of the history of the film. That is something that is is talked about in as early as I can remember having watched it. Um, I remember that being a uh, that being a thing. So, you know, it is interesting to see the extent to which Mank sort of doubles down on his own cynicism and anger and just lets it sort of encompass everyone, even people that he generally quite likes um so that's the sort of interesting angle um davies as the sort of collateral damage of his um attack on hearst yeah and i think um amanda seyfried is maybe my favorite performance in the movie i mean like like uh, already people i think are kind of like you know putting her down as like whenever the oscars finally get around i think that's like april but you know putting yeah. her in the mix is like a, a major best supporting actress um contender and I, I do think my favorite scenes in the movie are her and gary oldman um who plays herman mankiewicz and who i i think is also just terrific in there and it i, I think it's almost hilarious now that we gave him the the darkest hour oscar because uh, you yeah. know that he would have like an, an another performance 
after that that you know i think this performance is a better example of kind of like what makes him terrific as an actor and just uh, just what a like professional he is and just how kind of like charismatic and game he is for for everything and the just sort of like rat-a-tat banter between him and um super eight is i i those were just my most enjoyable scenes in the movie is that they have a a great sequence that's on like the Hearst property where they're going around his his the like lavish gardens and there's a zoo there um and and just like talking about her career and Hearst trying to put her in these sort of big dramatic movies that maybe she feels uncomfortable about sort of venturing in traditionally being a sort of correct me if i'm wrong like silent error comedy star yeah. Um, and and th- that's a whole other interesting aspect to this movie is I've, I've seen a lot of people sort of like writing pieces on her now that there is this kind of like electric, delightful performance <laughs> in this movie of someone portraying her and talking about kind of maybe, you know, because of Hearst's will, she was sort of not getting put in kind of the right roles to kind of continue being a big star, which she arguably could have been. The funniest thing about this movie for me is that, you know, and this is really doesn't even have much to do with the movie itself. It's just so we talked earlier about the fact that it's it is this very sort of niche object that has a very limited audience. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, that audience is film Twitter. It seems like a film that was made in a carbon copy machine for film Twitter to be interested in. And the funniest thing is that most people are either a not all that interested because it's barely about Citizen Kane or b pissed off because it gets certain facts wrong which i can't blame i mean there's a scene someone pointed this out on twitter um that like the film gets um i think it might have been jason bailey who called attention to a tweet about it which um it's about (laughs) um there's a scene set in 1930 where it's david oselznick and uh, joseph von sternberg and uh mank and a bunch of other screenwriters and they're talking about frankenstein and it's like we're not uh we're not universal we don't make frankenstein and the wolfman okay like neither of those movies was out in 1930 universal had not yet established its horror film reputation so i think it's kind of funny that like even for what's ostensibly a film made for like big film buffs like there's just certain information that doesn't quite connect and everyone's gonna get all up in arms in that for me it wasn't enough to like distract i can't stand that stuff I'm I'm like going through that same experience right now with the crown of people being like Netflix needs to have a warning at the beginning. Oh, I know fiction. And it's like, get the app out of here. This is I don't know. I, I get more irritated if sort of like the change you are making to history makes an otherwise interesting story less interesting. But I I don't know. I, yeah, I, 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 that I that is part of the the sort of mank backlash that I think has sort of like made me roll my eyes the most is, you know, e- even kind of going in expecting like, oh, this is a movie that's maybe going to, you know, give the Pauline Kale argument the benefit of the doubt, which I don't think it actually does. I think actually from what I understand of some of the reporting that has come out since then, that's kind of discredited that piece. I think this movie kind of, you know, I, I gets most of its, its facts about like who did what fairly right. I mean that yeah. Wits did these sort of like the initial drafts and kind of put a lot in there, but that Wells kind of, sharpened the blade of that movie a little bit more and kind of brought more out of it stylistically um 
But I don't know. I just had to go on my little rant about no, sort of no. Like, I, I, it's not history is sort of to me no. just like the most like nails on a chalkboard kind of film criticism. For yeah, anything. I totally, I totally understand because I do think like you know I think it's fun to point out like small little material errors that they missed out on. But at the same time, it's like it's not like if that's why you're not liking a film, then okay. And the Wells stuff, I do think the central reason why the Wells fans are going to be upset is because of the the sort of fit that Wells throws when mm-hmm. Mank says he needs credit. Um, and I mean, look, everyone in the film world is going to have their own opinion on the the Kale piece, on the Mank Wells drama. This movie didn't change in anybody's minds. And if you think the public at large knows much about pauline kale andrew saris and the credit fight over citizen kane i really don't think most people care so i think everyone is kind of you know it's a very insular drama and you know people and fincher has said plenty of controversial things about wells about movies in general in the lead up to this so it's a film that is going to sort of exist in its own echo chamber discourse and i think Mm -hmm. it misses i think that sort of focusing on that aspect of it ends up missing out on a lot of what the film does interesting which is where i have sort of gravitated in reading some of the pieces the are the writers who are more willing to give it the benefit of the doubt and talk about the things that it does do well you know it is this really well-made fast-paced film um i certainly don't agree with people who say that it's kind of like i've certainly i've seen the complaint that it's boring or that this story isn't particularly interesting I think it is. I understand, I guess, why some people aren't as fond of that. Um, yeah, I I, yeah. I understand as someone who found some of the, you know, as, as someone who kind of struggled at least through the first kind of like 15 minutes. Um, I, I think once it gets into the flashback structure, it becomes a lot more engaging and you really see the meat of the story. Um, I did want to briefly kind of talk to you about the sort of like meta aspect of this movie um, and kind of what this movie means for Fincher's career. I mean, it's, we obviously mentioned earlier his, his late father, Jack Fincher wrote the screenplay. Um, this does sort of feel like the kind of to coin a term from an, another podcast that I love dearly. You know, this is, this is a David Fincher, like blank check project. This oh, is, yeah. this feels like him, you know, he hasn't made a movie since Gone Girl, which is like yep. six years ago. And since then, he's been in development at Netflix, who largely working on the, the TV series Mindhunter, which it sadly appears is no longer going to be with us. You know, as well, was also um, very involved in kind of getting House of Cards launched. Um, on that streaming service which is kind of their first big show and so uh, this just feels like this project that he kind of like had on his shelf for years and years and wanted to do i i I think less of his own interests although i think there is like a fascinating meta narrative to read into like no one is more willing to just dish out shit on the hollywood system than david fincher and some of these just like I've I've almost just been enjoying more just like the press run of just like every every day when I open up and someone's like freaking out about a new statement he said I'm just like my guy hasn't lost his touch this is just no like, not one bit this is just like chef kiss emoji every time he just like throws some sort of insult about like something he finds stupid in the system um 
but you know it makes sense that he would make like a very cynical movie about that kind of classic hollywood system and um you know it it this all there's also i think just i have to if while we're sort of pinpointing people to interesting reviews i think adam Naiman at the ringer wrote a really interesting piece that was sort of thinking about kind of like what even fincher has at stake with this movie and how much of this is like how much is he engaged in the story versus like wanting to do something for his own father and then there's sort of also the the kind of stories that um screenwriter eric roth came in and kind of helped out with the screenplay some to kind of like update and sort of like sand the edges on some stuff but of like eric roth isn't <laughs> doesn't get a credit and sort of like that's its own sort of like fun meta narrative in the movie but I, I i think this feels like the the kind of thing that he has done with sort of having this immense power and kind of influence at at netflix and the willingness to kind of like yeah i'll, I'll cash my kind of like blank check of anything you want um to do and and do this movie for my dad and it, it's interesting to think i i've enjoyed kind of afterwards sort of reading some of these pieces and kind of thinking about kind of like what what is it in this movie that is for him and that he is engaging in and maybe it is just you know the tech aspect and uh, you know if we have a little bit of time i think talking about kind of the the look of this movie and the the conversation about whether or not fincher is you know is is he trying to be accurate or is he trying to evoke and there's an interesting discussion to be had in that um but i i, I think this is also just uh an interesting movie to think about kind of like the the psychology of the person who made it if that makes any sense yeah no absolutely and i am not the first person to say this i think it's been brought up a few times but also of course netflix wants to make a movie about how the hollywood studio system is evil and corrupt of of the old you know the netflix probably sees themselves as a certain sort of kinship with anyone who um wants to take down the old guard a little bit and you know that's probably a more problematic element of it but it also probably has a little bearing on the fact that fincher probably has a great disdain for you know most uh you know studio executives and the sort of corruption of the system in general and yeah the the production elements are already sort of a, a subject of fascination for a lot of people because you know you have this film that was sold by his producers beforehand or maybe it was sarandos or some of the other sort of leaders at netflix who were like oh well david fincher really made a, a 1930s film here okay well yes he shot in mono sound yes he shot in black and white he also shot in widescreen which did not exist until like the mid 50s uh, he also right. shot in digital so you know it doesn't necessarily like like there's a, a sort of deliberate play there like just sort of messing around with certain stuff i think it was i think glenn kenny and and um cam collins reviews both call it playful in its own sense and i think that is an accurate description where there's this sort of you know there's ways in which the the film is um you know messing around with the visual style of uh you know old hollywood movies but it is a it is a takedown it's not sort of meant to it's not like tarantino where you know i keep drawing that comparison just because it's the most recent film but it's a particularly apt one in order to sort of draw 
the tension between the two. Like, there's no like loving, adoring. Like, there's like a 10 second shot, or maybe it's even shorter than that. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's just like film canisters going into a projector, and like he loves that stuff. Tarantino is like a total film fetishist. Meanwhile, Fincher shoots all digital, and so he's making this film that kind of sort of sounds like an old Hollywood film and kind of sort of looks like one. Um, but in reality, it really doesn't. And that sort of coincides with the sort of anti love letter. Um, I guess I would call it almost like a death note. It's like a middle finger to uh, Hollywood in a little bit um, in, in its own way. And so, you know, those sort of elements coincide. And um, yeah, I do think the sort of hyperfixation on like, well, why did he shoot it like this? Well, you know, there's probably some deliberately contradictory elements in play and i think that's pretty essential yeah for me i i think and kind of what i mentioned earlier i i think my interpretation of it was just um it's interesting you bringing up tarantino because it the sort of technical aspect of this movie made me think about when you know tarantino and robert rodriguez did their their grindhouse project and yeah um i don't i don't know i i think it's less of you know, it, it's something we don't really have time to debate, but I think we're probably both more on the same side of a debate of is Fincher using all of the technology at his disposal to try and create the most accurate recreation of what a movie would have looked and sounded like in the 1930s. I, I think it more has to do with um the the sort of other side of that debate, which is, you know, is is he using... This, these sort of signifiers that we know as as film watchers to kind of say something or evoke a certain time period i i kind of you know my my take on the sort of technical aspect of the movie is just we see the 1930s and this kind of old hollywood period through those those sort of same technical signifiers, if that makes sense. You know, the, the 1930s is just as much kind of, I, I I believe I also heard, you know, this take being said on, um, you know, uh, by Amanda Dobbins on the, the big picture podcast, but of like, we sort of experienced the 1930s through the movies that came out in that period and venture using these sort of very specific technical tricks to kind of shoot it in black and white and kind of, put the little cigarette burns which i have to i have to imagine was just like the smile on his face considering the like hilarious sequence about that concept in fight club yeah um but you know and and compressing the sound to make it 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 the dialogue sound like a movie from that period i think he's less going for something that is a carbon copy or is trying to sort of dupe the audience into like oh is this some un unearthed yeah new new film from martin scorsese's vault you know i think it's it's less of that and more i'm using these sort of the visual language of of filmmaking to kind of put you in a specific place i i think we could easily spend another hour probably just oh, sort probably of diving yeah. into uh the just like various performances and and history that this movie um covers before you go i i've had you on a podcast before to talk about uh the the tragic state of um movies and movie theaters yeah. uh and so i kind of had to get your your take on um the warner brothers news that happened 
last week. Uh, this podcast will be dropping on on Monday, so this happened last. Gosh, last Thursday, um, Warner Brothers basically made the announcement that their entire 2021 slate of movies, which includes, you know, stuff that kind of sounded stupid, like King Kong versus Godzilla to stuff that I was actually really looking forward to, like um, Matrix 4 or even the Dune movie. Um, all, All that stuff will now be going to HBO Max the same day that it hits theaters and will be available on HBO Max for a month. Um, and then we'll continue to play in theaters, um, you know, for a remaining run. Uh, but I, I, I saw a lot of people just kind of signaling, you know, this is a strategy a few episodes ago. I talked about that, you know, what the new Wonder Woman movie is going to be kind of the first test of this. And this news that their entire 2021 slate was going to also have the same strategy, I think, sent shockwaves across the film Twitter world of yeah. people saying this is the the nail in the coffin for movie theaters. I think my sort of like shrug, what are we going to do response was just tweeting. Welcome to the new normal of, I, I think this is, this is your new movie release strategy for the 2020s and probably going forward. And um, I don't know what, what we're, what's kind of been going through your head the last few weeks are, are are movie theaters doomed? Are they going away? Or do we need to, to all chill out? So I would say this. I would say, first of all, I know we've been sort of we've been recommending pieces to read left and right on this podcast today, but I would highly recommend anyone who's curious about the ramifications of the Warner Brothers decision to read Peter Labuza's piece on it. He's a media industry scholar and has a lot to offer about the fact that this is literally a sort of uh, AT&T corporate driven decision to drive up subscriptions to HBO Max so they can compete with Netflix like that is the baseline of it that is yes. why this is happening um, you know it's a tough question I mean you know in a year from now if HBO Max is massively up in the subscriber game if they're you know if if they've climbed to Disney Plus numbers if they're charging people $15 a month and they have 70 million subscribers, the game has changed for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that will be the the sort of, you know, that will be where we go from here. And um, I would be surprised if movie theaters have, you know, much of a future. And I'll say for movie yeah. theaters, I mean, I, I am someone who loves going to the movies. I, I love seeing films in theaters. I love the experience and the sort of, um, you know, having watched everything at home for basically the last nine months, you know, I've watched a lot of good stuff and I've paid, you know, pretty close attention, but there's always distractions. There's always, you know, the ability to look at your phone or go get snacks or whatever. And so this sort of attention that being in a movie theater requires um, is something that I dearly miss. Um, I do think we are prone as film lovers who've had sort of really formative experiences there to, you know, and also people linked with the industry in, in some ways. You know, we're both members of a critics group. We're both, um, you know, people who have, have have our own set of connections, however remote they may be. Right. Um, to, you know, romanticize it a little more than it deserves. Um, the experience is expensive, uh, arguably overpriced. Um, there's continually been, by the two major chains, 
uh, Regal and AMC, less attention to the nuances of film production or a film uh, exhibition and presentation. Um, you know, audience members have grown less and less respectful over the years. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. The, the most promising idea, genuinely, and I mean this, the most promising idea that I heard all week was that, yeah, this will kill movie theaters, at least the big chains, because they rely so much on the big blockbuster product that they simply need that to exist. And so Regal and AMC, for all their sort of, you know, massive inadequacies as a company, as companies, will eventually fail. But, you know, we've seen it this year with the virtual cinemas and a lot of stuff. There's still a lot of desire out there by that sort of core cinephile audience to support movie theaters and independent movie theaters and you know that real estate space that's built by whatever you know if amc goes bankrupt there's you know tons of theaters across the country what are you going to do with that space there will still be movies projected in theaters in some way we just may see a paradigm shift here that sort of uh you know reshapes how we view content and for me partially the way i think about it is like my own, you know, I saw a lot of stuff in theaters for a long time, partially because I was a critic and I was, you know, really working to refine my writing. And so I would see a lot of things and I would review a lot of things. Um, with most stuff coming home now, I, I honestly like feel pretty liberated. I just kind of watch whatever the hell I want. Like if there's something new that's out and I really want to watch it, like Mank, or um, I got a screener offer for a, or for a, a movie that I want to see, yeah, I'll take it and watch that and watch new stuff. If I want to just watch, you know, 30s musicals or, or, you know, international cinema on the Criterion channel, I'll do that. So, like, I was looking over that list of the Warner Brothers titles, and yeah, I want to see Dune. Yeah, I want to see Wonder Woman. Uh, Matrix, yes, I love the Wachowskis. Um, there's so much on there that, like, I know I would have seen if I had AMC Stubbs A-list, because, like, well, damn, got to go see something. But now I'm just, like, it will be there, and if I ever feel like I, wa I want to watch it, great. If not, I don't need to think about it. And to me, it's a little liberating. I mean, maybe this will like force Hollywood to to sort of make better movies. I, I don't know. These are just this is I've gone off on a ramble, but these were my stray thoughts when the news hit. But certainly, I, I concur with everyone else. Game changing moment for Hollywood, um, and it will be especially um, game changing if uh, Disney and Universal. Well, Universal has their seventeen day deal, and they don't. You know, they have Peacock, but they haven't really figured out what the hell to do with that yet. But if Disney follows suit, uh, yeah, movie theaters are in trouble. <laughs> well, on that apocalyptic note, uh, Josh, <laughs> thank you for um, for coming by on this yeah. week's episode of The Latest and discussing Mank. 